All right, so we are talking a little bit more about some end times type issues. And today it is what we believe about the millennium. So I'm going to start giving you some, uh, some millennium facts. First of all, we can say that the millennium, millennial falcon does uh, 0.5 past light speed. Do the castle run in less than 12 parsecs? These are facts. They, who knows what they mean, but okay, that's the wrong millennium. Uh, we get that. We're talking about the uh, millennial kingdom, that millennium. I, I just wanted to clear some things up, just in case this is new for you. We're not talking about the Millennium Falcon. If you hear the phrase, the millennial reign, that does not mean when the millennial generation will rule the earth. That, that would be terrifying, okay? <laughs> that would be the tribulation, okay? <laughs> Sorry to all you millennials out there. But. So millennium means 1,000 years. So this is the, uh, the teaching that Christ will return and he will set up a kingdom, a literal physical kingdom on this earth, that we, he will reign on this earth for a thousand year period before the end of all things. So the reason that we are taking some extra time to talk about this this week and next week we'll talk about the, the rapture and the tribulation is because they are mentioned um, in our official documents. So... To show you a little bit of that, last time when we talked about the uh, doctrinal statement, we talked about a variety of different end times events, and at the very end, it talked about his reign on earth. And it doesn't really say too much there, unpacking that, what that means, just in that section of our doctrinal statement. Uh, But there's other places where uh, our documents get a little more specific as far as what that means when it talks about his reign on earth. And so in our Constitution, actually, in, when it talks about the confession of faith, there is an item where it says we also believe in the pre-tribulation rapture and the pre-millennial return of our Lord. And because of that, I thought it would be good to spend more time unpacking that. If this is things that we say that we believe and that when people are members of this church and they're looking to become members, we want them to, to know what it is that we're saying when we talk about this, and also to have resource to, to think through these different issues. So it says that in our uh, Constitution and also in the doctrinal statement, way back in Article 3, when we talked about the statement regarding Jesus Christ, and there was a lot there that we had to talk about, but there was... Uh, some specific information regarding his return. And so it's good for us to take a look at that again. It says, uh, as part of this, uh, after talking about Christ being the only eternal Son of God, coexistent with the Father, and it goes on, talks about his death and his resurrection. And then it says, he ascended to the throne of God, where during the church age, he is the saint's great high priest. He will return prior to the tribulation period, where his saints will be caught up to meet him in the air and return with him to heaven, he will return to this earth prior to the millennium in power and great glory to establish his kingdom. So that's where it talks about that a bit in some of our documents, and we then want to take time to, uh, to take a look at this and say, what are some of the, the biblical teachings? Where do we get this from? Why would we believe something uh, like this that, uh, some people view this as very fanciful. That um, I remember having a conversation years ago with someone that said, "You really you believe this type of thing?" 
said, this sounds like it's the end of a Lord of the Rings novel or something, all these things happening. I said, well, yeah, I do. And uh, there's plenty of stuff. I said, this person that we would both believe as far as what God has done in the past. And so I don't see this being any, any stranger than uh, uh, some of these other miracles and different things. God creating the world, God uh, you know, flooding creation, uh, swallowing Jonah uh, with a giant fish, all these uh, different things, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is, uh, this is not going to be business as usual once Christ comes back. Things are going to be very, very different, but um, I, I believe this, and I don't have a big problem with this at all. But we want to take a look at this. I feel bad because I know this is going to be scratching the surface on this. And I know that what we're going to do is I'm going to give an overview of the position that we hold to. I want to talk about the three main positions and that's where I really will feel bad, because there are, there, there are good Christians that hold to different positions on this, that are different from us. And so I want to try and describe their position without uh, necessarily throwing them under the bus. And I know with the time that I have, it's going to be difficult to do this. Uh, if we had a Sunday school class where we uh, could do this for weeks, we could unpack things more, because there's always more that they'd be able to say, well, you didn't talk about this, and you didn't give these reasons but we're going to try and do the highlights the, the best that we can. And I want to finish giving the reasons why I am convinced that uh, the position that we hold as a church uh, does make sense and why I still would affirm that. So, <clears throat> thinking of some key points, and I started in, if you have the bulletin, uh, just having some three key points for us to think through to unpack this. And I have, I'll give those to you up front, and then we'll kind of dial in and get some of the more kind of nitty-gritty with this. But the first key point is that there will be an earthly millennial kingdom. So it's something that we we hold to, that this actually is a real thing that will be happening, um, that it will be be earthly. So it's not just a spiritual kingdom. This is not just eternity in heaven, but actually something that will take place on this earth in the geography of, of this planet. And... This is a theme that you can see in many places in Scripture. You see it pointed ahead to in the Old Testament in a lot of places. Now, as you go in Scripture, more gets revealed. So there are some things, it's like this with a lot of doctrines, where it might be revealed uh, just in bits and pieces, and the more you go, the more, uh, it's called progressive revelation, more knowledge that is given to us until I think that you get to the end with uh, Revelation 20, which gives us even more details than they had originally. But some of the verses we could look at, and I'm going to be going pretty quick here, so you're going to need to either jot things down or get the CD later on if you want to take a look at more of these references. Uh, But one reference would be in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel chapter 2, in 34 and 35, there's this vision of this statue, and it represents various kingdoms, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, Greece, uh, the the Romans, and then finally at the end, uh, there seems to be this combination empire, Uh, but then what happens at the end, I can't get into all the details, but it talks about a stone that is not cut by human hands, that, that comes in and destroys all the other empires and fills the whole earth. And in Daniel 2.44, it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, 
nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So this is a permanent kingdom that is going to be uh, set up. In Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, it reads, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it, flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. When he talks about he here, I think we're able to look back and see, oh, this is about the Christ, this is about the Messiah. He shall judge between the nations. He will decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against a nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So I think if you take a look at uh, what is being said there, I think this is something that when we look at, you turn on the news, it would be difficult for us to say that this has been fulfilled, that the nations have cast away their weapons, uh, that, you know, the uh, uh, North Korea has taken their missiles and they're just using their silos now, and nations are not getting ready to pummel each other in war. See, no, that's a reality that we're still living with, so I think the fulfillment of this is still something future. You could look in Micah 4, 1 through 8 for similar statements to that. In Isaiah 9, 7, prophecy about the Messiah talks about of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Last week we looked at Psalm 2 and part of that uh, in verses 8 and 9, it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And I think that's a prophecy that I think uh, would find its fulfillment uh, with the things that we are talking about today, with uh, uh, the millennial kingdom. You could also spend time looking at Isaiah 65 and 66, uh, which describes the kingdom in some earthly terms. Although we have to point out that in 65.17 it mentions new heavens and the new earth. And so uh, there might be some uh, distinctions that, that need to be made. It might be one of these things that's looking towards this kind of as a whole and uh, not necessarily differentiating uh, different parts of this. And of course Revelation 20, which is going to be our main passage that we're going to look to. So there will be an earthly millennial kingdom. Uh, the Old Testament says there will be this kingdom. It's Revelation 20 that we get that it's going to be a thousand years. Uh, that's information that is supplied later on through progressive revelation. We believe as part of this that Jesus will return to earth prior to establishing this thousand-year reign. And we're going to see that's what makes this view pre-millennialism as opposed to some of the other views. The pre means Jesus returns prior to setting up this thousand-year period. And then after the thousand years, there will be a variety of things. There will be a final judgment in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, actually, all of this, there's, there is a lot more detail that we haven't got into yet. Uh, and we'll be able to talk a little bit more about that next week as far as the tribulation. 
as far as other things that happen when Christ returns, that there is, uh, there is a final judgment. Uh, before that, there is one last um, gasp of Satan as he is released from prison and rounds up forces to try and uh, take on Christ and his kingdom one last time. So there are more details than this, but this is some of the basics. And we're just this week focusing on the millennium, and then next week we'll get into more specifics with uh, what you may have heard of uh, called the tribulation. So that'll be, that'll be next week. So then after this, the very end is the, the new heaven and the new earth, that God creates this, and we spend eternity actually on the, the new earth. So let's turn to Revelation uh, chapter 20, which I said is going to be our main passage, although I want to actually start a little bit before that because I think it's helpful. The chapter divisions, uh, they were added later. But we want to see the return of Christ. And so in Revelation, we'll read kind of a large chunk here, but I think it'll be helpful. This will be starting in chapter 19. Okay, so we'll uh, get a running start here. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw, and and I want to say too, if you read the whole book of Revelation, uh, this is after just all of these cataclysmic things that happen that uh, would, we believe that it is a uh, description of what has happening during the tribulation period. So you get to the end of all of this and these different judgments, uh, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. And then finally, after uh, many things, you get to Revelation 19.11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is a description of Christ returning. And his eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following with him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword to which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We've heard that in Psalm 2 and other places. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, it's the Antichrist, and those who worshipped its image. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So you get some very strong imagery in this description of the return of Christ and conquering 
uh, the, the Antichrist and his forces here. Then it goes on, and this is where it specifically talks about the Millennial Kingdom, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, to the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Let me pause here. So you, we're going to see this repetition of a thousand years. It's not just thrown out once. It's said a few different times. So you see also here Satan being bound during this time in, in prison where he is not allowed to deceive the nations any longer until there's going to be something that happens at the end of the thousand years. Verse 4, <clears throat> Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark in their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Blessed is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. There's a lot of them. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in their beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This is the great white throne judgment. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. This is a judgment for unbelievers as well. Or they're, they're raised but for judgment, not for eternal life. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So the eternal place where people are that die apart from Christ will spend is called the lake of fire here. And this is where we, we get this description. We get in here that this is an eternal thing, tormented day and night forever and ever. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're someone that accepts Jesus Christ as your Savior during this life, you know that your name is written in the book of life. If you've received him because he died on the cross for you, you've turned from your sin, you've accepted him for what he's done for you, uh, then there's no mystery if your name's going to be found there. Your name will be and has been in the book of life. I want to read just a little more into chapter 21 so we get kind of a big picture of all of this. Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And I'd love to keep reading, and I hope that you will, but I think this gives us a good sequence and overview of, of these events. With finally, at the end, this is the new heavens and the new earth. And you see the new Jerusalem that Christ said he leads to prepare a place, and this is finally coming down. And so uh, I believe that what we're seeing here at the end is that where we actually spend eternity is on the new earth. And it's that God has prepared this and that he comes down and dwells with us, to be with us forever, and creation restored the way it's supposed to be. Humanity was, was put on this earth in, in Eden at the beginning. And sin has uh, driven us out of Eden. Things are not the way it's supposed to be. But here at the end, you see things restored, humanity back in this uh, beautiful garden that's even better than it was before. So you see the, the bookends of Scripture coming, coming together here. So <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about an overview. Let me give you a summary of three main views. There is premillennialism. There is post-millennialism and amillennialism. So, and there's, you may have heard some people joke that they're pan-millennialists. They say they don't worry about it, just everything will pan out in the end. Okay, so that's just a dumb joke that you like have to use every time you talk about this. It's one of those required things. And you know what, there is a sense that regardless of whether we get this right or we get it wrong, you know, God is not bound by, like, we, we're not taking a vote as Christians as far as what he's going to do. Okay, God is going to do what he is going to do. He determines this. So um, regardless if Christians at different times get this wrong, he is going to do what he sovereignly uh, chooses to do, but it's up to us to take a look at what has he revealed to us and what can he know. So looking at this, the, the overviews, these are, I'm going to give you some simplified charts here, okay? And to kind of put this together, um, I don't have the tribulation and some things in here. This, these are simplified. So for pre-millennialism, we said that the big thing about why it's pre is that Jesus returns before, that's what pre means, before the millennial kingdom, the thousand years. So you have uh, Christ and the cross, his resurrection. Right now we're in the age, the church age, and that uh, will end with the second coming. And we will unpack that uh, next week, and we'll say we believe that is actually something that is uh, kind of a complex event. And then you have the millennium, this thousand years, and then that's supposed to be a little throne. So you have the, the final rebellion, you have the great white throne judgment, and after that you have eternity, which we believe is going to be the new heaven and the new earth. So that's the chronology uh, that when we say as a church we believe in premillennialism, that's what we're, what we're saying. Another view that uh, Christians have held is post-millennialism. And so post means after. So in this view, it means that Christ returns for the second coming after the millennium. There are different versions of this, and it gets complicated very quickly. Uh, and this is driving me crazy because I spent... I probably did four or five hundred additional pages of reading and study on this that 
uh, this week trying to understand and unpack things. And this is in addition to things I've done before. So um, I feel like it's a little bit like a, you know, a caterpillar tripping over its legs if it thinks about all the individual ins and outs. So some of these views, there are different versions of it. Uh, there are some that hold that the millennium is still something that is in the future. That uh, through evangelism, that people will be converted to Christ and it will usher in this golden age, uh, this millennial kingdom. And that some would hold that it's going to be a thousand years. Some would say, well, it's a symbolic amount. Who knows how long it'll actually be. And so some would hold that it's a future thing that the, the church is to usher this in. There are different even versions of that. There are some that uh, in some uh, liberal Christians have held that it's going to be the, the, the social gospel that is what will uh, bring this into place, that uh, as humanity improves, uh, we will get better and better, and you know, our functioning of society will cause this to be ushered in. This was a big thing during, um, <clears throat> during the, 19, well, the 1800s, the 19th century, uh, and before that as well, too, there were um, some that saw, you know, we're, we've um, liberated the slaves and these different things. Some of these, you know, Civil War, you know, hymns are really post-millennial. We're, we're ushering in God's kingdom by making this world a better place. And some really thought that this is, things are getting better and better. 20th century is going to be this great uh, Christian century, and we're just getting ready to usher in the, the golden era through our progress and our enlightenment uh, 20th century kind of uh, put a damper on a lot of that optimism because we had uh, these gigantic world wars, uh, millions and millions of people being slaughtered. You had you know, the Great Depression, all of these things uh, right up to the end, and now we have you know, terrorism. And so uh, that really put a damper on this optimistic view. There were others, uh, more uh, conservative, that... Uh, viewed this as being done through evangelism. And even some people that I really respect, a lot of the Puritans uh, held to post-millennialism. Jonathan Edwards, uh, some of the, the conservative Princeton theologians of the, uh, the 19th century, uh, Charles Hodge, Warfield, Machen, uh, kind of held to this. It was before the World Wars and uh, before some of those uh, different events. There are others that believe that the millennium actually started a long time ago, and that we've been, we've been in it. And uh, some of those, well, earlier on, thought it was going to be a literal thousand years, and then Christ would return. Once you got a thousand years into church history, you know, that view dropped away because you realized, well, it's been a thousand years and it hasn't happened. So they either had to adjust dates or say that it was, it was figurative. But you have some that would hold that it started with... Uh, um, Rome destroying Jerusalem in AD 70, or maybe with Constantine converting to Christianity in 313. So there's all kinds of different uh, views on this with, with post-millennialism. And they view this, this age of growth, uh, it's never actually been one of the uh, the most common view, even in all of church history. And uh, I would say of the three, it's kind of the minority view that is today. There's also um, the view that's amillennialism. The prefix ah means no. So, so if someone is an atheist, it means they don't believe in God. 
So amillennial means that they don't believe in at least a literal millennium. So the, the, the age of the church, age of the millennium, uh, it's, it's, there's no literal thousand years or some literal period. So in this, a lot of prophecy is, um, uh, is, is very symbolic and uh, simplified. So you have this era, and then Christ will return at any moment and then just usher in eternity. Now, we would agree with them in the sense, we'll see this next week, that Christ could come at any moment. And so that would be an area of agreement that we would actually have, that it can preserve the, uh, the fact that Christ can return at any moment. Uh, but we would hold that there's more to it uh, than this and that there are good reasons to hold to a literal earthly uh, millennium. Let me talk about amillennialism a little bit more. I have to try to think through my best use of time here as we uh, go through this. But as I was thinking about it, I guess I just want to say premillennialism, kind of rewinding to that a little bit, I'm going to keep these charts up on the, the screen for a little bit uh, to help you view this. Premillennialism was actually the predominant view in the early church. So if you read writings by some of the church fathers from Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, they did hold that there was going to be a, a future earthly millennial kingdom. So they did hold to that, although they thought they were already in the tribulation. Because remember, they were undergoing persecution. So they didn't view the tribulation the same way that we do. Uh, but they did look forward to an earthly um, uh, millennium that was coming. Now, some things changed, I think, especially once Christianity took over the Roman Empire. You know, Christians aren't under persecution anymore. And it was maybe a little bit easier for them to say, you know what, it seems like, you know, this golden age has arrived. You know, the emperor is now a Christian. It's the favored thing. And the world, as far as we know it, you know, they're not thinking as much about the Far East and, you know, distant lands, but, you know, as far as Europe, hey, we're, we're basically becoming, you know, very Christianized um, throughout the, the Middle Ages. So I think you can see where there was uh, less motivation to look forward to this earthly kingdom and to suspect that, uh, well, maybe the, the kingdom, we're, we're living in this whether in some kind of post-millennial or amillennial uh, fashion. So some of the things I think that accounted for the shift were the conversion of Constantine as the emperor of uh, Rome in 313 AD. Um, also, there was a rise of allegorical interpretation. So that's, instead of looking at scripture um, as, as literally as possible, uh, being, well, the different amounts that some people get into this were some where they're able to just make everything symbolic and i'm not saying that every person that disagrees with me makes everything symbolic but sometimes there's more of a willingness to look at some of the prophecies and to take them as being symbolic instead of having the more literal be the default position so you had uh, origin in the early church that really had this allegorical interpretation um augustine uh, was one that he utilized uh, some of this as well. So, <laughs> I think there are at least three bad reasons, underlying reasons, why some people reject the future earthly millennial. And I want to give these, and this is from doing a lot of thinking and a lot of looking at um, what uh, 
seems to be going on throughout church history. And when I, when I say these, I'm not saying that everyone that rejects the millennium believes all of these. But I think some do, historically speaking. And I would say if you're someone that's thinking through these issues, I think I would say these are things that you would not want to be your motivation for rejecting a literal millennial kingdom. So I want to give three. One would be a spiritual view of eternity. I think a part of the reason that the church in uh, the Middle Ages in church history started to not look forward to a literal earthly millennium is they started to have this view of the eternal state as being otherworldly. That it's not something that's going to take place on this earth. You know, that uh, there was quite a few that were heavily influenced to one degree or another by a lot of the Greek philosophy that viewed the physical world as being bad. I mean, there's everything from Gnosticism to uh, Plato's belief and uh, Neoplatonic uh, philosophy. And they really viewed that we're, we're trapped in these bodies and our goal is to, to break free and to be free of the physical. So for some of them to view eternity as like an earthly thing, uh, th- it didn't make sense. And so if you don't see eternity being on a, a new earth that actually is an earth, um, and instead you start to think, well, Christ returns, and then it's just this out-of-body mystical thing. Some of them view that all we do for eternity is just, we just uh, are like in this frozen contemplation of God. Uh, it is really hard to view that as um, something, if, if, if you start to think of eternity that way, then a millennial kingdom starts to seem very, very foreign. And so some of it, uh, for some, is because they had this uh, platonic view that didn't view the physical world as good. Now, like I said, not everyone that believe that di- not everyone that disagrees with us would hold to this. Uh, there's quite a few theologians. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of Reformed theologians today that hold to amillennialism. It's probably the common view for Reformed theologians. And I do see a lot more willingness for them to say that there is a, we spend eternity on a new creation, on a new heaven and the new earth. And so I, I see that change. And if that's the case, that would be one thing that should be one less roadblock to being a, having a problem with the millennial kingdom. So I think one bad reason would be a, a, an overly spiritual view of uh, eternity. Another <clears throat> bad reason would be, well, animosity towards uh, the Jews. And I wish I could say that this has never been the case during the last 2,000 years, but it it has been, where there's been animosity towards the Hebrew people. And again, I'm not saying that everyone that disagrees with us has animosity towards the Jews in church history, though it has been the case. And I, I wish I could say I never see that today, but there are times where I do sense that. Uh, with some people that just have a certain bitterness towards uh, the Jewish people. And so if part of this is seeing fulfillment for um, God's promises to, uh, to ethnic Jews, um, <clears throat> if that's a reason that you have for not wanting this to be true, that would be a reason that we would want to get rid of. Another bad reason would be just, you know, considering a circle of influence. Sometimes we're influenced by those that are around us. And that can be, that's true for us. That's true for other views as well, too. What we grow up being used to. Um, sometimes it's, you know, there's such a thing as p- 
theological peer pressure. You know, we want to believe what the cool kids believe and, you know, if, uh, not believe what the, the dorky kids seem to believe. So sometimes that can be something that, that happens. I think there's sometimes people react against maybe crude presentations that they've heard about end times teaching uh, when they were younger and they kind of want to shy away from some of that. Because there's been some ways this has been described that sometimes is embarrassing. Um, but that shouldn't be a reason uh, to reject this. Um, it should be pointing us towards, uh, instead we want to look at what does Scripture actually say. So, we talked a little bit about post-millennialism already. Amillennialism, we've, we've hit on a little bit some of the reasons uh, for that. And wish we could get more into this. As I said, they view Revelation 20 as being very um, symbolic. Um, and there's, I think, some problems with this. So the way that they would interpret the binding of Satan, they would say that this is something that has happened in the past and that Satan had control over uh, the nations. And they would say that means the Gentiles. And therefore, that's why the Gentiles didn't respond to Christ in faith. So in their interpretation, and this goes back to Augustine, that uh, Satan, he wasn't completely bound, but he was just limited in his ability to deceive the nations. And that's why the, the gospel was able to spread to the Gentiles, to the, non, to the non-Jews. Um, there's some in one book on three views on the millennium. Uh, the amillennial author of that book says there's reasons that the New Testament rules out an earthly millennium because he says supposedly many of the events, according to Scripture, all happen at the same time. And I would say that I would disagree with that interpretation. And I would say there's actually lots of times in Scripture where there's things that at one point in prophecy look like they're all happening at the same time, that when you get closer to it, you realize that they're not all happening together. I've said this to you before, that in prophecy, oftentimes it's like looking at these mountain ranges, and then the distance, it looks like they're all together. And then as you get closer, you realize there's one range of mountains and then another one. I'd say when you get even closer, you realize that even in each range, there's different individual mountains and different peaks. It, it sometimes it gets a little bit more complex as you get closer to it. And so, you know, in the Old Testament, they had a tough time seeing, okay, this, the Messiah sometimes seems to be a conquering king and other times seems to be a suffering servant. How can that be? And they find out later, well, there's two comings of the Messiah. And he comes first as a suffering servant and he comes again uh, the second coming as the conquering king. But there's, well, we know now there's been at least 2,000 years between. There's been other times where we see that as well. In Exodus um, 3, 17, the Lord promises to bring the Hebrews up out of the land of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites. If you applied the same logic, you'd say, well, that has to happen all at the same time. But we know there was at least a 40-year gap. He brings them up out of Egypt and then there's a delay. There's the, the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. And then they go into the land of Canaan. Um, you could say some of the same things, 2 Samuel 7, with the promises of one of David's descendants on the throne forever. Uh, there's, there's a gap there until Christ is the one uh, that comes. Okay, let me finish up. I'm going to give you, in a nutshell here, these are, for me, these are the key reasons why I 
still hold to premillennialism that I find uh, persuasive for me. And one is that I see no strong reason to not deny that Revelation 20 teaches a literal, earthly, thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Uh, the way I view it is that it's best practice to, to take a literal sense if, if that works. If there's something where the literal sense just obviously can't make sense, then yeah, we, we recognize that. And there is some symbolism in Revelation. We get that. Just like there's symbolism when Jesus says, you know, I am the door. None of us think it means that he is an actual gate or a door or made out of wood or has hinges. We, but we recognize what it means is that he's saying, I am the way of access. But at the same time, if the literal sense can make sense, I don't see an urge to have to explain it away. And I don't see any reason why Jesus couldn't return and set up an intermediate kingdom on earth that is a thousand years long, and then there's a final battle, and then uh, we move into eternity with the, the new heavens and the new earth. I, I don't see a reason why that can't be. So um, I'm inclined to just take it uh, straightforward. I mean, it says, you know, a thousand-year period um, six times. So it seems to me like it's trying to drill that into us. Yeah, it, we don't have that information before this in Scripture, but this is kind of the, the climax of God's progressive revelation. And also, I think, too, if we start to say that this, this section of Revelation is just symbolic, then we're losing a lot of other things that we would want to be able to say, okay, we can know information uh, that of other future events, the return of Christ, um, information about uh, the judgment, the, the great white throne, information about hell and the lake of fire. I think, you know, several years ago when uh, the, the Love Wins book came out by Rob Bell and people were denying if there's uh, eternal hell, um, they're kind of rethinking that. I noticed it was tough for some people to just point towards uh, Revelation 20 and say, well, it talks about this being a lake of fire, and it talks about it being forever and ever. You kind of lose the, the ground to be able to do that if you've taken a lot of these other things as just very, very highly symbolic. So um, that's one reason. Another key one, and I wish we had a chance to unpack these and to give all the rebuttals for it, but the binding of Satan in Revelation 20, I just think it can't be reconciled with the present activity of Satan today. In 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And also, too, if Revelation is about the tribulation period, um, or actually no matter how you interpret it, there's a lot of passages that talk about Satan being active and deceiving the nations. Revelation 2.10, 2.13, 12.17, 16.13. So I think it just doesn't make sense to, to think that right now, do we really, does this seem like a time period where Satan is imprisoned, so he is physically and literally gone, so he cannot deceive the nations anymore. And to me, the, uh, the explanation that this is just keeping him from keeping the gospel from the Gentiles, I don't think that's strong enough to fit the language that I see in Revelation 20. 
being thrown into the, the abyss, sealed and shut over him so he may not deceive the nations any longer. That seems to be that he is, compl- he is in, in jail. He is being isolated from us for, for a thousand years. So for me, that's something that I find very uh, compelling. Also, there's this resurrection that happens in Revelation 20, verse 4. And if you have one of the other positions, you have to try and deal with this, and it becomes difficult. I didn't mention this, but in the chapter on three views of the, um, the millennium, the, the post-millennial author, I think he gets about 38 pages into uh, his chapter without mentioning Revelation 20, and then basically says, I wish I didn't have to talk about Revelation 20. Because, yeah, it's very difficult for his position. And you have to basically say that when it says that um, this resurrection, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years, you have to say that's either a reference to the new birth, people being saved, or some would say that there's an actual, some kind of other resurrection that has already happened. And I think you have a lot of problems with those, and those don't make sense. To say the only resurrection so far that has happened, uh, the, the first resurrection uh, has started. There is one first mountain peak in, in that mountain range of the first resurrection, and that's Jesus Christ. But for everyone else, that, that's still a future thing. And then also, Romans 11 talks about there being a, a future for ethnic Israel. And I hope that for the men, you can come to the Romans study this year. But I see Paul throughout the book of Romans expressing that he really has a heart for, uh, for his brothers and, and sisters of ethnic Israel. And there's so much in the book of Romans that's about this that I think the context of when you get to Romans 11 and it talks about this uh, is still about God saying, yeah, I, I'm not, I have not completely set aside uh, the Hebrew people. There is a future for them. And therefore, any explanation that says that God has just permanently set aside his people, I, I wouldn't be able to buy that. So I think there is still a place for them, and I think it finds some great fulfillment uh, in, in the millennium. So let me just read to you there. I mean, to, to really get it, we'd have to look at the whole thing. But Romans, and we'll just finish with that. Romans eleven twenty-five through 28. And Paul's been struggling with the fact that, you know, why is it that right now most of the Jewish people, they haven't turned to Christ? And he says, well, most of them, they, they weren't the, the elect, but there's going to be this time where there's this mass return. And so, let's see, Romans 11, 25 and 28. <clears throat> Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the, fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 
for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And it goes on with this. There's a lot of things that we could take as far as conclusions and applications. Take joy in the fact of knowing that Jesus will return, that he will make things right. Things are out of control for now, but it won't be forever. And people that say that you want to be on the right side of history, that doesn't mean going along with progressive things that are against God's word. This is the end of history. If you want to be on the right side of history, believe what God says, because he is the one that is going to come and reign. Physical creation will be redeemed. The Lord will keep his promises. Jesus will reign forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your deep love for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who came the first time to deal with sin. And thank you that he has accomplished that through his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. He has sat down at the right hand of God, and that he will return for us. And we will look forward to his reign forever. And right now, we as his people, we bow the knee to him now, and we look forward to the day when he will reign. In the name of Christ, our Lord, our King, we pray. Amen.